Good morning, brothers and sisters. Take your Bibles. Let's open up together this morning to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. If you'll go ahead and find your place there, we're walking verse by verse through this great book. As you know, if you are a guest with us this morning, maybe it's your first time at Tri-Cities, we want to welcome you and invite you to join in this journey with us. We're walking verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. As a church, we believe every word of God is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. So we walk verse by verse through books of the Bible. We find our way, our place in Hebrews chapter 9 this morning around verse 23. If you need a Bible, uh, there's a paper copy in the seat pocket in front of you. That's our gift for you. So you can take that with you and use that this morning. Now... I will have to say, you guys have a tough act to follow. The the early service was a powerful service. It was so powerful, the lights went out halfway through the preaching. So we're hoping that doesn't happen again this morning. Hebrews chapter 9. Now, before I start reading, uh, let me kind of set up what we're going to be looking at here in this chapter. And then we're going to dive in, give you a big truth, some big ideas this morning. Uh, You and I live every moment of every day in a world that could be categorized as the already and the not yet. We live in the world that could be looked at like this, already, meaning those things that are already accomplished, they're already fully done, and then there's other aspects of our life that's the not yet, we're, we're waiting for those to happen. Now let me give you some silly practical examples of, of this. I, you're having a good meal and you sit down over a steak and baked potato and, and you, you finish that meal and somebody says, did you enjoy your dinner? And you said, oh yeah, I've already eaten the steak and baked potato, but the dessert is not yet here, right? You're waiting. There's more to come. Let me give you another illustration. Family vacation, right? Everybody loves family vacation. You're, you're in the minivan, you're headed to the beach, maybe Florida, you got that 10-hour drive ahead of you, you finally get everybody in the van, you're on the road. Are you on vacation? Yes, but you're not there yet, right? You got 10 hours ahead of you. You're waiting till your feet hit the sand of that beach. There's this waiting. Now, on an infinitely much more important realm is God's redemptive plan throughout history. (laughs) There are very much aspects to God's redemptive plan in Jesus that are fully accomplished. They are already done. At the same time, there are things that are not yet. We, We are waiting for those things. For example, has Jesus already accomplished everything necessary for our salvation through his death and his resurrection? Is it finished? Yes. Already done. But is there a final chapter in God's saving work, his plan of redemption, that's not yet occurred? Yes. We sang about it this morning. We live in the world of the not yet. 
we are waiting eagerly for that day when King Jesus returns to fully carry out the redemptive plan of history, make all things new, set everything right, give us our glorified bodies, unless we will go be with him forever and ever and ever. And the church says, come Lord Jesus, right? So we live in the already and the not yet. And we come to Hebrews chapter 9, the end of the chapter that we're on, Hebrews chapter 9, the end of this chapter is going to balance between these two dynamics. You're going to see some things in these verses that you can declare with all glory and passion, yes, it is done. Christ has accomplished this. And then you're going to get to the end of the chapter and you're going to see something that we are waiting eagerly for. It's a not yet. What is it in these chapters? We're going to look this morning. What is Christ already fully accomplished? And what is it that we are eagerly waiting for? And then what does it look like for God's people to wait well for God's promises to be fulfilled? So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. I'm going to read these verses, give you some big truths, big ideas, make it real practical for us this morning. All right? Hebrews 9, 23. Thus... It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Remember, the author of Hebrews from the beginning to end is declaring the superiority of Jesus Christ. He is showing us God's redemptive plan throughout history. How can a holy God, perfect, ever be right with sinful, wretched humanity, you and me? How can that gap ever be bridged? And he shows us the redemptive plan of God that began with these pictures, these uh, copies, these shadows in the Old Testament, like the tabernacle that was given to the children of Israel. If you've been following along with us, we've been talking a lot about this. This is just a quick review. These things were given as, as copies, as representations, temporary. The high priests were given, earthly high priests, who would go in and bear sacrifice as a symbol that death, sin brings death and a sacrifice is necessary to be right with God. All those things were temporary. All those things were pictures of the greater reality in Jesus Christ. So he says it was necessary for these copies, the temporary things, the tabernacle, the priests, all these things that came before Christ. Then he says, verse 24, but now the reality is here. For Christ has entered. And remember, this is written to a Jewish community. They're, they're going to have in their mind all of these pictures of the Old Testament, of the tabernacle, when the priest would enter on their behalf, bearing these sacrifices, representing that represented the presence of God. and the, the presence of God was unapproachable except through sacrifice and all these pictures. Verse 24, now Christ has entered, but not the earthly tabernacle, not the copy. Goes on, nothing to the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
I can't even begin to communicate the weight of the statement of the author of Hebrews if you are reading that as a Jew and you understand the copies and you understand what it means to enter the presence of God for this writer of Hebrews to say, now Jesus has not entered the earthly picture. He has entered the very presence of God himself. Watch this. On our behalf. Incredible. Incredible. Verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. The sacrifice of Jesus, unlike the sacrifice of the priests in the Old Testament, was not something he did over and over and over and over and over and over again. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest entered the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is. He, Jesus, appeared once for all at the end of the ages. It's speaking of the absolute sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus himself for the sins of the world. Not something to be repeated over and over once for all. Credible theme. You're going to see that more in chapter 10. He has appeared once for all, end of verse 26... At the end of the ages, that's the season we're living in now, the season of Messiah. Messiah has come, the end of the ages, to put away sin. That's a great statement. Anybody struggle with sin this week? One of you. Well, maybe one of you is honest. Thanks. Anybody, even in Christ as a redeemed child of God, long for the day when sin is not only going to be put away in its power, but it's going to be put away in its presence forever and ever and ever? I do. Jesus has appeared once and for all into heaven itself, it says, to put away sin by means of the sacrifice of himself. Verse 27. And just as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, certainty, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, this is glorious, so he's talked about all these already realities, now the not yet, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, it's already dealt with in Christ completely, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Big truth we're going to chase this morning and then some big ideas that will flow around this is this, Jesus will appear again. Amen? Come Lord Jesus. Jesus will appear again. You and I as followers of Christ, day in and day out, we live in the realm of the already. We take our Bibles and we live in the realities of the already accomplished work of Jesus. And we live out of those realities. And at the same time, we take our Bibles and we read these promises that are not yet. And we're in that space between the two. And Hebrews is calling us to understand that and at the same time to live well as we wait for our king to return. So I'm going to ask two questions as we go through these texts this morning. It's this, what has Jesus already accomplished? 
Hebrews lays it out here beautifully. And then what are we waiting for Jesus to fully accomplish? We'll look at that in these verses. Question number one, what has Jesus already accomplished? It's glorious. Look at verse 24. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now, when you read your Bibles and you come to a place where it mentions heaven, I don't know what fills your mind. It might be images with streets of gold and gates of pearl and all that, and I'm sure that's going to be glorious, and the Bible speaks to all those glorious realities. When the author of Hebrews talks about heaven here, let me tell you what he's talking about. The very presence of God. The presence of God. And I'll be honest, I don't even know how that statement strikes you this morning. If you are in Christ and you know Jesus, then there is this longing within you for that day when you will enter his presence fully, unhindered by sin. And there's at the same moment the reality that in Christ, Jesus has purchased your way into the very presence of God. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And at the same time, if you are outside of Christ and have not trusted Jesus and him alone, there should be a terrifying expectation of the judgment that will come of those who are outside of Christ. So he says Jesus has entered not the earthly tabernacle that was a picture, but something infinitely greater, the reality into heaven itself, to appear in the presence of God, I love this, on our behalf, for you, in your stead. If you read this and you go, well, man, Jesus finally entered into the presence of the Father. You understand that Jesus has dwelled in the presence of the Father for all eternity. But now, in his humanity, as he took on flesh, died for the sins of the world, he enters as our high priest to bear our sin. He has entered. Here's your big idea. Number one, Jesus has entered the presence of God on our behalf. If you hear that as a Jew and you're reading this and you know the old covenant, you, you picture the earthly high priest who would enter into that place called the Holy of Holies that represented the presence of God. And he would only go in once a year and he would have to go in with sacrifice for his own sin and he'd have to go in for the sacrifice of the people. And that was repeated year after year after year after year and they have that in their mind. But then you come back here and the Bible says, but Jesus, verse 25, as it is, he has a appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus has appeared in the very presence of God on our behalf with a better sacrifice of himself. Thus his sacrifice, unlike the earthly high priest, is once and for all. It is already, already fully accomplished. Everything necessary for you and I to have communion and fellowship and enter the very presence of God. This is a glorious reality. As you read these, I, I'm just reading over this this week and I'm getting ready for this morning and I'm thinking and it, it's so easy for us, especially if you've grown up in the church, maybe if you've been reading through Hebrews, 
to come across some of these truths that we just read in Hebrews 9 and you just kind of go right over them and you gloss right over them. How should you and I respond this morning to the statement we just read in this verse that Jesus himself has entered into the very presence of God on our behalf? How should we respond to that this morning? Let me, let me just give you a big idea that will flow out of this. Because of the better sacrifice of himself, we can draw near to God. It should catch us this morning as we read that, almost reading it afresh. Wait a minute. In Christ... Because of his sacrifice, the better sacrifice, because he has entered into the very presence of God on our behalf, you and I, by faith, have full, unhindered, constant access to the very God of the creation himself, God our Father. Access to God is fully open to you. That ought to take our breath away. Jesus has purchased for you and I access to the Father. Remember when we talked about last week, the cost of sin was death, and we went all the way back to Genesis, and Adam and Eve were created to have fellowship with God, and they lived in that perfect fellowship with God and His presence in the garden. Sin entered in. Sin separated them from life. Sin separated them from their fellowship with God. They went to the corner of the garden. They hid themselves. They put on these silly fig leaves trying to cover their own sin. Why? Separation. Sin had separated them from fellowship, communion, relationship with their God. Isaiah 59 verse 2 captures it this way. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. There's a separation. And listen, wherever you travel in the world, no matter who you talk to, every human being that's honest realizes there's some gap between themselves and their creator. Now, they'll find different ways to try to bridge that gap. I, I was in Bulgaria a few weeks ago with Sin Network, not Sin Network, but Sin Network, and a bunch of church planters, and we were working with some of the Bulgarians who were there, and we got in a conversation with this guy, trying to understand the spiritual climate of Bulgaria. We said, do you have any kind of relationship with God? Is spiritual life a part of your life? He said, oh, yeah. He said, I commune with God, uh, and the way I connect with God is yoga. I said, Really? How's that work? He said, when, I, when I'm doing my yoga thing, and I'm not against stretching, I mean, it's a good thing, but he said, when I'm doing my yoga thing, he said, I feel the presence of God. Now, in one sense, I thought, well, that's, that's one of the silliest things I've ever heard. And at the same time, my heart is broken because I want to declare the righteous Son of God has already entered the presence of God on your behalf. Infinitely better than yoga. There is nothing on earth that you can ever do, purchase, say, go to, experience that will purchase access into the presence of God Almighty except the blood of Jesus Christ alone. He's it. And as believers, I think it is possible that we take for granted these great truths that in Christ we have open access to our Father purchased by the blood of Christ. 
Listen how Hebrews says it. Let me read this. We'll get to chapter 10 in a few weeks, but let me just jump ahead really quick. Hebrews 10 verse 19 says this. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, not the old covenant, not by the shadows, by a categorically new way through the blood and the life of Jesus, which he inaugurated for us through the veil. That's that veil separating man in the presence of God. That is his flesh, verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, verse 22, here it is. Let us draw near. Let us draw near. Man, I think it is possible for us as believers who are familiar with these truths for, to take for granted the great moment-by-moment moment daily gift it is that in Christ he has entered the presence of God on your behalf. Therefore, you can enter the presence of God on faith, by faith as well. Hallelujah. Therefore, whatever the situation, whatever the struggle... Whatever the high, whatever the low, whatever you're facing. That's why Hebrews back in chapter 4 says we don't have a great high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He's been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, draw near to the throne of grace that you may receive help and find grace in time of need. Draw near for joy. Draw near for satisfaction. Draw near for help. Draw near for life. It is open to you and I in Christ as his people through Christ. Amen. Access to the very presence of God. At the same time, I think it's important to say at this point, you may be here this morning and you recognize there is a gap between you and your creator. You think somehow you can bridge that gap through your own good deeds and your own self-effort and your own religiosity. And let me declare to you this morning the good news that the only way you can have access to God in love and fellowship and joy and forgiveness is through Jesus Christ who's gone there on your behalf. That's it. So for us, we rejoice in this already accomplishment because of the better sacrifice of himself. We can draw near to God. Draw near, beloved. Enjoy the fellowship you have with God in Christ. So what has Jesus accomplished? He's entered the presence of God on our behalf. Keep going. There's more. Verse 25. Nor was it for him to offer himself repeatedly. Once and for all he offered himself. As the high priest who enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly from the foundation of the world. End of verse 26. But as it is. Here's an already accomplishment of Jesus. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, mark this in your Bible, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Here's your next big idea. Jesus has appeared once and for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
The word here appeared, if you're a Jew and you're reading that, again, your mind goes back to the great high priest in the Old Testament. It goes back to that day of atonement. The priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and there would be this time when he would be in there making sacrifice, represents all representative of the presence of God. And the people, they would just wait. Because they knew if he had entered that place wrongly, or the sacrifice hadn't been done correctly, or, or whatever, there was a possibility he wasn't coming out. So they would wait, and they would wait, and they knew when they saw that high priest appear or exit out of the tabernacle, then it was in triumph because the sacrifice, in a sense, had been accepted, if you will. So this idea and this word here, appear, to the Jew is a word of triumph, meaning an accomplishment. In the same way it is applied to Jesus, not that he appeared out of an earthly tent, but he, he appeared out of death itself. There are hints of the resurrection that Christ has appeared very much alive to prove that the sacrifice of himself has been fully accepted. Your debt is paid. It is a statement of triumph. He has appeared triumphantly victoriously and what has he accomplished in the verse 26 to put away sin wow the phrase to put away if you do a word study it's a great word study for you you're not going to find this phrase very much in the new testament it appears twice in hebrews the, the idea in the original language is this to abolish something it's to exile something it's to fully remove something. It's to actually judge something. It's the idea that that sin that is in us, on us, all over us, we're eat up with sin, which we should be judged for. Jesus in his death and resurrection has judged sin and exiled it and sent it away. It's a glorious reality. He has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself Jesus dispenses sin he exiles it he places it under judgment and ultimately he is going to remove it from our experience completely but not yet we're waiting so what does it mean when we read over it it's another one of these realities in our daily life and we read that okay Jesus has put away sin what does that mean the immense implications of that here's a big idea for you because of the better sacrifice of himself, the power of sin in our lives is broken. The presence of sin, not yet. There'll be a day it's fully removed. But for now, according to scripture, by the sacrifice of himself, the, the power of sin, beloved, listen to me, in your daily lives has been rendered powerless. The, the, the enemy is defeated. Here's what that means. You have the capacity in Christ by the Spirit to battle those temptations, to battle those addictions, to battle those things that weigh you down. In Christ, you can announce triumphantly, the power of sin is broken in Christ. That's good news, beloved. Because if you're a believer, you understand what it means to live in the not yet. All this has been accomplished, but Christ has not yet returned. Therefore, 
I don't have my glorified body yet, and I'm still eat up with the residue of sin. The old habits, the old temptations, the old challenges, they're there. I battle them. You battle them. But we battle them in power. We battle them from victory. Sin has been put away. You can walk in freedom. But I'll just tell you this. It's a daily battle. Right? That's why you need the Word. You need the Spirit. You need the church. You need God's people. But the power of sin is broken. Here's the way Paul puts it in Romans 6. For the death that he died, Jesus, he died to sin. Once for all, there's that same concept. But the life that he lives, now the resurrected Savior, he lives to God. You also in him, verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore... Here it is. This is discipleship here. This is taking the truths of who God is and what God has done and appropriating them to your daily life. Therefore, when I wake up in the morning and I'm tempted, when I'm in the office and I'm tempted, when, when whatever you are tempted and it feels as if that sin has so much power over you and you can never defeat that, you claim, you memorize, you meditate, you pray verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Sin is defeated. Power is broken. And therefore, we can battle in this not yet realm, waiting until Jesus returns. We can battle for Christ's likeness and holiness because Jesus has put away sin by offering himself on our behalf. It's a glorious reality. So what has Jesus accomplished? He's entered the presence of God on our behalf. Therefore, those by faith can enter the presence of God every moment of every day by faith, commune and fellowship with our Father. What has Jesus accomplished? He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The already. But what about the not yet? What are we waiting for Jesus to fully accomplish? What are those things we set our sights on and we set our hope on the promised fulfillment in Christ? Look at verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Now, why does the author of Hebrews say that here? It seems as though he's saying it to declare an absolute reality. Just as it's an absolute reality that all are going to die. Everybody's going to die, by the way. The U.S. government spent a lot of money on this survey, and they found out that 100%, 10 out of 10, die. It's a reality. The author of Hebrews says, just as sure as the reality is that all die, and then comes the judgment. It says with that same certainty, he goes on, verse 28, and says, so Christ. He says, just as certain as when you die, there is no purgatory. When you die, there is no holding tank, there is no soul sleep, there's no wheel of reincarnation. The Bible declares that following death, there's a certain judgment. Just as certain as that reality is, verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, 
will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin. In other words, not to put it away, not to die on behalf of sin. He's going to render it gone in its presence, but the power of sin is already broken in Christ. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What are we waiting for Jesus to do? Final big idea is this. Jesus will appear again to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now I want you to understand something, beloved. I want to be really clear biblically on this. Has Jesus accomplished already everything necessary for our salvation? Yes. The price of his life, his blood, was paid for us to be right with God, for us to have forgiveness, for us to have redemption. But there are yet implications of his work that have not been fully experienced in our life and will not be until Jesus fully returns. There are aspects and implications of the atoning work of Jesus that we're not going to experience till he gets here. What are we waiting for? What is he going to accomplish when he returns? You could go on about this forever. I'm just going to give you a few. Here's a few things. John 14, 3. Jesus says this to his disciples. He's gathered them there. He's getting ready to go to the cross in just a few short hours. He says, I'm going away. Their heart's broken. What do you mean you're going away, Jesus? Where are you going? John 14, 3. And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. Oh, man. You want a verse to take and memorize and write down and pray? Jesus promises his disciples then. He promises his disciples now. I have gone away. I'm coming again. And when I return, I will bring you to myself. Hallelujah. What a Savior. In other words, what we now experience by faith, Communion with God, fellowship with God, constant access with God. We will, in the future, when Jesus returns, fully experience by sight the very presence and face of Jesus himself. Oh, Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Unlimited, unrestricted joy in his presence without the presence of sin at all. Jesus says, I'm coming and I'll bring you to myself. What else? 1 John 3, verse 2, one of his disciples who were, they were there when Jesus made this promise takes an application of it and he writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now and already, something already accomplished. Then he goes to the not yet. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Something in the future. What is it, John? But we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. That's shouting ground, brothers and sisters. If you're a Christian and you're constantly battling and longing for Christ's likeness and to be more and more like Jesus and more patient and more loving and more full of joy and more like Christ and more on mission and more of a loving husband and more of all these things you long to be, more like Jesus, and you constantly are battling with this thing called sin, that's our reality. There 
is a day coming when he will appear in all of his infinite glory. And when he appears, John says, you will see him as he is and you will be like him. Not deity, but a fully formed follower, image bearer of Christ like him, the firstborn of many brethren, who from the Father has created a people to be like Jesus in all of his fullness, so we will reflect him forever and ever. We will be like him. Man, come Lord Jesus. So we will be with him. We will be like him. Paul takes this and says it in Philippians chapter 3. For our citizenship is in heaven. From there we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What's he going to do? Verse 21. He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. We will be like him in glory. You say, why does, it have to, why does it have to happen like that? Why, why does he have to return? Why do we have to have a glorified body? Because he's going to make all things new. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth untainted by sin. But a sinful human being still in our sinful bodies can't dwell in a sinless planet and a sinless new heaven and a new earth. So he returns. We receive our glorified bodies. We are like him so that we can worship him and know him forever. And we'll do it in a new heaven and a new earth when all things are made perfect. Revelation chapter 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne declaring, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. That's hearkening back to that Jewish language. Not that we'll have a building again, that's not the point. But the experience with God, the fellowship with God that we now know by faith, we'll fully know by sight. Unhindered communion and fellowship with God. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things as a result of the fall will pass away. Verse 5, and he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right. For these words are faithful and true. Come, Lord Jesus. So you hear that. And you read that. As a disciple of Jesus, and you have to go from that, and then you have to ask this question, just like Hebrews demands that we ask. How do I respond to that? So the last question I want us to ask this morning, in light of these already truths, and in light of these not yet realities, how then do we live now? How do we wait well? Hebrews helps us. And I'm going to ask the team just to come on up and begin to play. We're going to move into a time of response, but I don't want you to check out. The response is, how do I wait well? Listen to verse 28 again. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What's it look like to wait eagerly? What's it look like to wait well, biblically speaking? 
In one sense, when we hear the word wait, we understand that it means the idea to, to eagerly and patiently expect something that's certain. We know it's coming, but we patiently and eagerly anticipate that. Watch. The writer of Hebrews is writing to a Hebrew audience, and the Hebrew understanding of the word wait is slightly different. If you read in your Old Testament in particular, the idea of wait upon the Lord is throughout the Old Testament, but it's always followed by this statement. Wait upon the Lord, and you will gain new strength. What does that mean? It means waiting here, as the author of Hebrews is implying, is anything but passive. The idea of wait is really a weaving term. And it means this. It means to weave. This is beautiful. To weave the character of God and the promises of God into our lives as we wait. And as we weave these truths into our lives, then we have strength and courage to wait well. Isaiah 40. Yet those who wait for the Lord, actively weaving the truth of God, the character of God into their lives, they will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. We wait well as we weave the truths of who God is. The promises of God's word into our everyday lives. What does it look like to wait well? Let me give you a few suggestions very quickly. Number one, the scripture calls us. As we wait, abide deeply in Jesus. 1 John 2.28, now little children, abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence not to shrink away at his coming. We abide deeply. Hebrews calls us to love God's people well. Hebrews 10, therefore brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our assemblies together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, loving one another, discipling one another, spurring one another on. And then he says, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We wait well by abiding deeply. We wait well by loving God's people. And finally, by prioritizing God's mission. Second Peter 3 says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all to come to repentance. Therefore, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Every day he delays is an opportunity for you and I to share the message of hope with those who don't, do not yet believe. His delay is his patience. We live in the world of the already and of the not yet. Jesus has fully accomplished everything necessary for our redemption, but we are waiting for him to return. And by his grace, Lord, help us to wait well. Father, we love you because you first loved us. We stand here because all that you've accomplished. We praise you this morning for Jesus' sake. Amen.